K-A-L-W. I was homeless for eight years in this neighborhood, and so I'm compelled to give back to my community. Last month, Bay Area communities conducted their biannual point-in-time count. Homelessness includes people who live in all kinds of places. Focusing just on unsheltered homelessness, it's only the tip of the iceberg. Today, a conversation on how we measure homelessness and the things we miss. Then writer Tommy Orange talks about his latest project, a collaborative novel. A lot of those feelings that are in the story came from a very real place. And we explore the history of Black communities in San Francisco. No person of African, Japanese, Chinese, or of any Mongolian descent shall be allowed to purchase, own, or lease said real property except as servants. Black Bay Area history and more. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. The point-in-time count is a nationwide headcount of people experiencing homelessness in America. It happens every two years during the last 10 days of January. But while the point-in-time provides most of our data about homelessness, many people say it's an undercount and fails to fully capture the scope of the crisis unfolding in American cities. This year, KELW sent two reporters, Ren Farrell and Alistair Boone, to cover the Alameda County count that's been happening since 2003. Alistair is a KELW Audio Academy fellow and has also been the editor and is now director of Street Spirit, a newspaper paper covering homelessness. KLW News Editor Sunni Khalid spoke with Alistair about the count. What is the point-in-time count, and how does it work? Yeah, so the point-in-time count, or the PIT count, as most people call it, is required by the Department of Housing and Urban Development for any community that wants to receive federal funding for homelessness. Um, It happens every two years, and it's sort of a bizarrely simple process. It's a visual count of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness primarily. So volunteers are sent out into the streets to count the people they can see sleeping outside, like in tents or in cars. Um, And the count does also include data from shelters and other social services. How is the point-in-time count different in Alameda County this year? And how might that impact the results? Alameda County actually had a record number of volunteers this year. In Oakland alone, there were about 400 volunteers, which is more than there were in the whole county last year. And across Alameda County as a whole, this year we saw about 1,000 volunteers come out. We talked to a bunch of the volunteers. Everyone had their own reason for coming out, but the consensus seemed to be that people are concerned about homelessness and saw the count as a way to help out. Uh, Because I was homeless for eight years in this neighborhood, and so I'm compelled to be able to, to give back to my community. This is a really tiny way for the folks who don't have the privileges that I do to be seen. And the experience of these volunteers was pretty different than in past counts. In previous counts, volunteers in Alameda County were asked not to actually talk to the people they were counting. But this year, folks were asked to survey people on the street in exchange for gift cards. Good morning, sir. Hi. I'm Isla Bird. I'm here with um, the Alameda County Data Point-in-Time Count. 
The surveys are expected to make the data that was collected by volunteers more comprehensive than it has been in previous years. People used an app on their phones to conduct the surveys, which asked for things like demographic data, data about age, race, sexual orientation, mental health, drug use, things like that. So there was one person sleeping behind that shopping cart, but I'm, I'm not going to wake them. How can we be sure how accurate they are? Yeah, so the point-in-time count is widely understood to be an undercount. This has a lot to do with the definition of homelessness that's used by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. According to HUD, a homeless person is an individual or family who lacks fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. So this accounts for people who primarily sleep um, in places that aren't fit for human habitation or people who live in shelters. And the people who fit into this definition tend to be single homeless adults. But the definition doesn't include people who are what's referred to as doubled up. So that means people who are staying with family or friends or people who live in motels or stay at campgrounds and similar places. The new definition often leads to the exclusion of homeless youth and families who, you know, are the people who are the most likely to live with family and friends or in motels or in other locations that are deliberately difficult to find. Well, if we didn't define it uh, as narrowly as HUD, do we have any idea how large those numbers would be for, for the homeless? Yeah, so the Department of Education actually uses a broader definition of homelessness, which does include people who are doubled up. Um, and these two definitions do produce very different numbers. According to the National Center for Homeless Education, there were 1.1 million homeless students in U.S. public schools during the 2020-2021 school year. And of these students, about 77% were living doubled up, um, and about 8 more percent were living in motels. So by comparison, the January 2022 point-in-time count said that just under 600,000 people were experiencing homelessness across all of America. So that's about half the Department of Education number, and it's supposed to include both children and adults. And advocates really do point to this. They say that by focusing on those who are the most visibly homeless, the government can prioritize funding the programs that will get people off the streets. Um, and while this might make it look like they've solved the problem, homelessness is a wide spectrum. It includes people who live in all kinds of places. So, you know, focusing just on unsheltered homelessness, they say it's only the tip of the iceberg. Well, that gets me. We have two different definitions of homelessness from two different agencies. Why is the point in time count even important at all? Yeah, I mean, the demographic data provided by the point-in-time count does help service providers get a sense of who's on the streets and how to provide the most effective support. But the biggest incentive to complete the point-in-time count is funding. HUD requires communities to complete the count in order to receive federal funding for homeless programs. The state of California also provides funding for homeless programs that's based on PIT data. Um, and these two sources of funding together from states and from HUD make up the vast majority of funding for homeless programs across America. What kinds of programs does this point in time data provide for the homeless? Yeah, so the vast majority of HUD funding goes into permanent supportive housing, which is paid in the form of subsidies. Um, and the funding from the state is a little more flexible. It's used for things like coordinated entry, navigation centers, rapid rehousing, and programs like that. Most homeless funding is really restricted to housing, so this flexible money from the state is really helpful for communities. What did the numbers look like uh, during Alameda County's last point-in-time count, and do people expect the numbers to go up or go down or, or to change at all? 
In the 2022 point-in-time count, there were just under 10,000 people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County. This was a 22% increase from 2019. That might sound like a pretty big increase, but it was actually moderate compared to previous years. Between the two counts before that, the number increased by double that amount. And at the time, county officials said this improvement was the result of COVID-era funding from the state. You know, programs like Project Roomkey allowed the county to rapidly move people off the streets and into transitional housing. But a lot of this funding has dried up now. And on top of that, the eviction moratorium that was keeping a lot of people in their homes during COVID ended in April of 2023. So do the experts expect a big increase then? Between that loss of funding and the end of the moratoriums, some people are bracing themselves for a big increase. But a representative from the county did tell me that it may be too soon to see the numbers jump. They made the point that when people get evicted, they can usually cobble something together for about a year before they hit the shelter system. So that doesn't mean they won't end up on the streets, but we may not be able to capture that new reality in the data until the next point in time count, which is in 2026. That was director and editor of Street Spirit, Alastair Boone, speaking with KLW News Editor Sunni Khalid. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. The book 14 Days is a story about stories. Tenants of a New York City apartment building are riding out the first two weeks of the COVID shutdown, and they pass the time by gathering on their building's roof to share confessional tales. The book is part of a genre called collaborative novels. It was written by 36 major authors, and one of them is Oakland's Tommy Orange. KLW's Janae Darden spoke with Tommy about the book and the genre. Tommy Orange, hello. Hi. Okay, 14 Days, this book. Before we even jump into that, it's 2024, Tommy, but I feel like it's 2029, the way this decade is going. What does time feel like for you in this decade? I mean, when you say, like, during COVID, it's it's weird to say because we're, like, going through a surge right now. I'm actually in a hotel room because my wife just got covid and so we were quarantined. I was here with my son because we both tested negative. And when they read the wastewater numbers, it's pretty like scary that we're not, you know, we're not out of it. But there definitely was a time period of like this two year period that felt like the most intense. I wish your wife well. So this is a collaboration novel. And some of the authors include Ishmael Reed, uh, Margaret Atwood, is an editor. Dave Eggers also wrote a piece. What was it like writing a book with so many authors? I mean, what was that process like? Because it's like 35 authors. It was not as collaborative as it might sound. I, you know, I was asked to contribute, but it wasn't like I got to get on a Zoom with Ishmael Reed, which I would have loved to do. And I'm, I'm sad I have to miss, I'm going to miss the 14 Days event, which is happening in San Francisco. And I think Dave Eggers and Ishmael Reed are both going to be there but I have to fly out that day. So I, I can't really speak. Uh, like, I'm really honored to be a part of 
this group of authors. So there's no byline on each story, which is is neat as a reader because you don't really know who the author is. I kind of figured out who you were. It was you because you mentioned Oakland and Stockton. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so you have to flip to the back of the book to find out which chapter the author wrote. And your story was noir. And one thing about you, Tommy Orange is going to take you on a ride. I'll just say that. There will be some twists and some turns and some curves. Was it fun writing this story that's so twisted? And do you like <laughs> writing noir? <laughs> the story was, it was good. But it, like I said, I, I was talking to the book, Tommy, when I was reading it. Like, I was like, oh my God, I can't, oh my. So I, I had fun reading it. But did you have fun writing it? I did. And I got to tell you, most of it is true. What? Not the craziest part. No spoilers. <laughs> you know what the craziest part is. That's obviously not true. Okay. But like, Sidon the dog isn't behind me. Obviously, he, what happened in the story didn't happen to him. There is a dog in the story, yes. But I ran. There was a tweaker. And this is a part of the story in Stockton. There's a runner with his dog, Sidon. It's actually not, it's not Stockton. It's the foothills east of Stockton. It's like an hour from Stockton. So you're okay. like going into the mountains at that point. And so I was that runner. I was running with Sidon. There was this tweaker that I saw. And, and what is a tweaker for people who don't know? I mean, I, I assume this guy was like a meth head. Like he, he was on meth. Tweaker is maybe like a 90s term that people don't use anymore. This particular guy actually drove the car that I said and had Washington plates. And he almost hit me and my dogs. And so a lot of those feelings that are in the story came from a very real place. It was very detailed, Tommy. I w- <laughs> <laughs> well, but those details are made up, I promise you. Okay. <laughs> you know, Stockton and Oakland are, are mentioned in this book about New York. Why is it, and you always mention the Bay in your work, why is it important for you to mention the Bay in your work? Well, first of all, just wanting to represent where I come from. I got love for Oakland and I ended up having a lot of love for Stockton. My wife grew up sort of in the foothills east of Stockton, but she grew up going to school in Stockton. So she sort of educated me on the richness of Stockton. There's a writer who just put out a book, I think two years ago called uh, Anthony Vesna So. It's called After Parties. It's all, it's like very Stockton. He's Cambodian, but he grew up in Stockton. And that's worth checking out just to, as a personal recommendation for books representing Stockton. I also feel like places like Oakland and Stockton are completely underrepresented in, in literature. You've done some stuff on COVID before. You wrote a screenplay for the series Normal Ain't Normal about post-pandemic life in Oakland. And I highly recommend people go on YouTube to watch it. What was that like for you to write a screenplay? And was that your first screenplay? Yeah, that was my first. And I feel like it was like the beginning of me learning how to do it because I'm just now finishing a, a feature film screenplay which was much harder. Oh, really? Oh, wow. I, I'm not ready to talk about that yet, but but I... Because you know I wanted the tea. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I am just finishing, I'll be finishing it this month, and it is with the studio, so it's like official. Oh, that's exciting. We'll see if they like it. I don't know if they're going to like it or not, but it was hard. It was hard to do, it, you know, the screenplay for a short film is like, you know, 10 to 13 pages or whatever, and then the screenplay is like 90 pages, so it's... It's the difference between writing a short story and a novel. It's a lot harder and, and requires a lot more thinking about structure and character development. It's really, really good. I mean, I was surprised it was your first 
time because it was it was so good. I had a lot of help from Josh Healy. Yes, and I interviewed Josh. Shout out to yeah. Josh. Yeah, shout out to Josh. He's great. Yeah, he is. Would you write horror or you've written horror? Because the, <laughs> the your short story in 14 days, I said, I can see him writing some horror, maybe even writing a horror film. I never really considered until just, you know, maybe in the past like three months, I started thinking about the idea of it. And I, I feel like I will, but I haven't done any yet besides... You know, closest I got is this. There's a there's a horror anthology that I'm in called Never Whistle at Night, and that came out last year, and it's it's actually doing really well for an anthology. So even though some people didn't come out learning anything from the pandemic, how did this tragedy make you better, or make you want to be better? Yeah, I think I I hit some low points that made me scared of like, oh, I I have the potential to really not be my best self in a way that's really harmful to me and and to people that I love. It started me on a path to like, just be better and not run away from a lot of stuff that I was running away from. So I'm still on that journey. I have a lot of work to do, but I'm hopeful. That was author Tommy Orange speaking with KELW's Janae Darden. The book 14 Days is out now, and you can see more Bay Area writers from the book at Book Passage at the Ferry Building in San Francisco this Sunday, including Ishmael Reed and Dave Eggers. That interview was co-produced by Porfirio Rangel. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. San Francisco has a reputation as being one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the country, but it has one of the lowest populations of African Americans. In 1990, 11% of city residents were Black. That number in 2001 went down to 7.8. Today, it's just under 6%. But the recent history of Black people leaving San Francisco is not a new dynamic. There's a long history of racism, including laws that enforced segregation. As a result, housing and employment opportunities were often hard to come by if you were Black. For Black History Month, we're revisiting a story from reporter Todd Whitney, exploring the history of African Americans in San Francisco. It's no secret that Black folks are leaving San Francisco. The city's hemorrhaging of Black people is so bad that a few years back, a supervisor warned that the city's reputation for being diverse is in question if the out-migration continues. But how did we get to this point? The history of Black San Francisco starts back in the early 1800s. It was a moment in time when African Americans started coming out pretty much for the same reasons as everyone else. Opportunities, gold, jobs, and freedom. Even so, for a long time, SF's Black population was low. So low that there was even a running joke that if you were a Black person in San Francisco, you probably already knew all the other Black folks living in the city. Yeah. The 1940 census said, said there was less than 5,000 blacks living in the San Francisco. This is from a 1998 San Francisco Public Library interview with Thomas Fleming. 
And then when the war began, some 50,000. The war workers started coming in. He was the founder of one of the city's black newspapers, The Sun Reporter. They started coming in right after Pearl Harbor. The war workers did. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. In 1941, America entered World War II, and the West Coast became the epicenter of the military's war machine. New shipyard jobs became a catalyst for black folks to come to San Francisco from places like Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. In San Francisco, new black enclaves exploded as the population ballooned. The Fillmore District was one of them. It became a black neighborhood for the same reason the South Side of Chicago did, Harlem did, or Compton did. Restrictive covenants. These were things written into property titles, and they said things like, No person of African, Japanese, Chinese, or of any Mongolian descent shall be allowed to purchase, own, or lease said real property or any part thereof or to occupy except as servants. So many of the newly arrived Black folks from the South ended up in the Fillmore, in houses recently vacated by Japanese Americans who had been relocated to internment camps. The Fillmore became known as the Harlem of the West. Everyone from Count Basie and Etta James to Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington would kick it in the Fillmore when they were out on the West Coast. But after the war ended, redevelopment projects started to demolish many Fillmore homes and businesses. So a lot of residents relocated to Bayview and Hunters Point. In theory, they could always go back to the Fillmore once the projects ended. But that rarely happened. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 outlawed restrictive covenants, but the damage was already done. By this point, there weren't many incentives for black folks to stick around San Francisco. So many ended up moving out to Oakland, where black middle class was starting to flourish. In San Francisco, among the few black folks left, a few fought for better living and employment standards. Because we do feel like that we have been an island are all set off on the island by ourselves. Eloise Westbrook was part of the Big Five, five women activists who demanded more attention from city officials for Bayview and Hunters Point. Here she is giving an interview back in 69. The people who live in Hunters Point, who have lived there for numerous of years, at one time had lost all hope, all faith. But we do feel like that with the new construction of the new housing, that hope is began to come back up again, hoping that we're going to have better schools, hoping we're going to have better housing, hoping that some jobs will come into that era that our young men may also feel have more dignity and pride, that they won't be on welfare or standing on the corners. Black San Franciscans are still fighting for many of the same things as Eloise Westbrook. Housing is tight and incomes are low. And now the city is standing on a precipice. If trends continue, San Francisco's black population is going to end up looking more like Salt Lake City's rather than New York or L.A. In San Francisco, I'm Todd Whitney for Cross Currents. That story was reported in 2015.
You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. Before we go, we have a reading from a guide on how to respond to anti-Black racism. It's from New Arrivals, our series featuring new books by Bay Area authors, produced by KALW's Lisa Morehouse. Here's El Cerrito author Maya Ely with an excerpt from her book, The Anti-Racist Vocab Guide. It's an illustrated visual glossary that provides high-level definitions of terms and historical events to aid in understanding race and the Black experience in America. The term respectability politics refers to the tactic used by African Americans and other marginalized groups to distance themselves from stereotypes about their ethnicity. They self-police to behave and present themselves in a manner that will result in being treated as an equal by the white majority. Most Black children are raised learning many hard truths. Don't ride with the music too loud. Don't walk around with your hood up. Make sure to speak English eloquently. Don't appear too Black. The lesson, they will have to work twice as hard as white children to have a chance of being seen and treated equally, is a marginalized version of America's classic meritocracy ideology. If you just work hard enough, you'll succeed. However, respectability did not stop Harvard graduate Christian Cooper from being racially profiled and having the police called on him while he was birdwatching in Central Park. It didn't stop the shooting of Philando Castile, but the police, when he was being cooperative and disclosed that there was a licensed firearm present in the car. Behaving respectably will not protect Black people from racism, physical violence, or emotional harm. That was El Cerrito author Maya Ely reading from her book, The Anti-Racist Vocab Guide. It came out in January. New Arrivals is produced by KALW's Lisa Morehouse. You can find that episode and more at KALW.org slash new arrivals. Tune in Monday morning at 11. Most Bay Area residents use fossil fuels to cook and heat their homes, but that might change. We need wisdom for the solutions and courage to back it. The Bay Area's future with clean power, Monday morning at 11. Today's Cross Currents team includes Steffi Puerto, Cheryl Kaskowitz, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Adil, Marissa Ortega-Welch, Angela Johnston, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba.